morning again. I don't know if it's y'all are too cold, but we got to wake up a little bit. Like y'all are allowed to clap after our praise team like sings. We're uh, we're not clapping for them. We're clapping because of the truths that we're declaring about the birth of Jesus and the rejoicing that has come into the world. So y'all are allowed to like, get excited about that. Okay, there we go. Thank you. Thank you. Just want to make sure, you know, give you permission if that's what you need. Because um, as we come into the season, we need this message, right? We need this message. Because you probably get a little bit tired sometimes. Get a little bit weary. Life in a fallen world can tend to wear you out sometimes. And then a season like this that's meant to long for the coming of Jesus and then rejoice in the coming of Jesus. We need messages like this because I imagine like you're going to go through this season and you're thinking about your calendar and maybe it's like mine. Like every night for the next however long has got something that's a part of it. And so you're like, yes, rejoice. But can I can I do it after I get through like this sprint of December? And so it can get stressful. And then you think about I'm going to have to spend all this time with family. And family isn't always the most encouraging thing. We all have dysfunctional families. Don't think it's just you. Like all of us do. Hopefully you don't. Like hopefully you're the exception, not the rule. But you think about, I'm going to guess, and it's going to be stressful. And there's going to be those people that start talking about politics. Or there's going to be those people, you know, the ones that are just really negative and complaining all the time. Or I'm going to get stuck talking to that one. And it can just wear you out. We need messages like this to remember It's good news that we're celebrating during this time. It's light. I need this message. The refugee crisis all over the world, they need this message. My family needs this message. Like it's not been the easiest year that we've ever experienced on a lot of different fronts. We need this message. This message of hope piercing into the darkness. This message of our weariness being taken off and shouldered by the Son of God and rejoicing. I love the song of Come Emmanuel because it is a song in the middle of darkness, in the middle of despair, and the expression of longing is what they rejoice over, not the experience of it. We need messages like this because our circumstances don't always reflect the light of the world that has come and the joy that has been multiplied that we're going to talk about in Isaiah 9. A lot of times our experience represents the yearning of O Come Emmanuel. It represents the longing of, I need you to break into this, and the joy that's possible because he has. The joy that's possible not because our circumstances are what we want them to be, or not because our circumstances is what we we need them to be, but because there's a God who's broken into our circumstances with a hope that's beyond our circumstances. We need messages like this. We need encouragements like this. We need Christmas's Messiah, his light to poke back into our darkness again. And so turn with me to Isaiah chapter 9. Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. And we're going to just remind ourselves about Christmas. Because the mark of the Old Testament is this longing, come. Come, Messiah. Come because we failed. Come because we've tried it again and failed. Come because each new king, even when they were good and brought prosperity, died and his son came after him and it just it it just all broke down again so come and then another king and another hope and another disappointment and another failure and in the new testament he's come and yet it ends with this longing expression even so come lord jesus 
Longing is part of the human experience. Longing is part of those who yearn and wait for God and the world the way it's supposed to be, the world he's way he's going to recreate it to be. And so in Isaiah chapter 9, it's kind of the culmination of this first section of Isaiah where the nation has earned a right good dose of judgment. Like just no way around it. They've earned it. They deserve it. The case is being laid out chapter by chapter by chapter of their sin and their rebellion and their idolatry and their turning away. And God's like, I, what else could I have done? Like I planted this wonderful garden. I used the best of seeds. I've used the best of farming techniques. I'm giving everything I need for this vineyard to prosper. And I get a bunch of wild, nasty grapes. Like that sums up chapters one through eight. Like it is judgment that has been well earned. And that is the gloom that our chapter opens up with. That's the gloom that's being described. And then, especially in chapter 7 and 8, we're getting prepped for this. And in chapter 7 and 8, the, the, the faithful of Judah are hearing this message. Israel, your neighbors to the north, your, for, your kinsmen, like, they have just formed an alliance with Syria and they want to come make war and destroy you and set up their own king. Great. Then these faithful people look out and they're like, our king actually literally burned his kids in the fire. Not a real encouraging thing if you're a faithful follower of Jesus, uh, of, of God. Alright, so our king's this. These other nations want to take us. By the way, there's this empire building called Assyria. They've already taken parts of the northern land. They're about to just roll like a machine over the top of our little bitty pitiful nation. And so you're sitting in the middle of the gloomiest of circumstances, rightful judgment that you've earned, pagan nations coming and destroying, your brothers to the north wanting to come and conquer you and destroy you, the promise of desolation, the promise of famine, and all the things that come with walking away from God. These are yours. And this is, this is the background where Christmas is proclaimed, prophesied. To the nation. And so when we open up in chapter 9 and it says, There'll be no more gloom for her who is in anguish, the gloom is what we have been leading up to. It's judgment, it's political turmoil. Ever heard of any of that going on? Like political turmoil? You might want a Messiah to step in and, like, could we get this right? Yeah, that same background. That's what they're doing. Wars, like, we're about to get conquered. Economic devastation, about to have that happen too. And that is the background, that is the gloom, that is the darkness that the hope of Messiah breaks into and joy is the response out of. And so it's not that those circumstances are going to change for these people. There's the promise that it won't always be this way. And that's what gives them joy and that's what I hope will press on us to get joy because the situation doesn't change much, right? Human condition is human condition. We have wars, we have politicians we'd prefer weren't there, we have... All kinds of silly stuff they do that we get to live under and live with and honor them for, right? I mean, we're supposed to honor the king, honor the emperor, we're supposed to do that. But we have to live with the choices these people make. We have corruption, we have oppression, we have all kinds of junk going on. And then we have it right here inside of our own lives and our own experiences too. And that's what we got to live with. And so the message like this breaks into all of that for us. So let's listen as Isaiah, as the Holy Spirit tries to encourage or does encourage the people of God to be faithful in the midst of circumstances where you see no light at all. But there will be no gloom for her who is in anguish. In the former time, he has brought into contempt the land of Zebulon and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way by the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. To the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shone. 
You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as the joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder and the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of trampling warrior in the, in the battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be tur- burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born. To us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, and of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform it. Let's pray. Father, your very sovereign passion guarantees that this passage will take place. Your very sovereign, omnipotent, focused passion will guarantee Messiah's victory, will guarantee his coming, will guarantee his life will accomplish its purpose, will guarantee that he'll reign over all things one day and he will make right all things one day. It guarantees rejoicing is possible in our darkness. It guarantees, Father... That we can rejoice as the joy of the harvest, even when we see no harvest. We can rejoice as those who are redeemed, even though we await that final redemption. We can rejoice in in a world of gloom, Father. Because Jesus has broken into this world. And he's begun a gospel that sets us free. And he will one day come back and make everything right and everything free. And everything eternally right under in your presence. And so God, we can hope, we can rejoice, whatever it is we're facing today. Whether it's just the simple stress of the holidays, or whether it's the burden of loss in the middle of holidays, or whether it's some broken thing in our families during the holidays, God, we can have hope because Jesus has been born. He has broken into this world, and he's making it right again. So, Father, grant us to do that. Help us to do that. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. And so the birth of Messiah breathes hope into our despair. The birth of Messiah breathes hope into our despair. Look at it. Messiah's coming will pierce darkness with light and replace shame with honor. Messiah's coming will pierce darkness with light and replace shame with honor. All right. How many of y'all are going to see Christmas lights this year? Already have. I know a bunch of you because you can't even get on the road that that has all those lights. You can't even go out there because it's that backed up. Right, and so this year we got a, we had a pre-lit tree, you know, got on clearance last year, Hobby Lobby, a couple weeks after Christmas, 90% off. You know, that's how we do things. So we got this pre-lit tree, which leaves like 28 strands of lights curled up in a ball inside our, inside our attic Christmas storage. And what do you do with 20, 20 strings of lights balled up? You unball them and put them out, right? Like you have them, you can't just leave them there. And so you got lights on the tables and you got lights on the mantles and you got lights on the mirror and you got lights on the front post and didn't get the lights on the back post, which you're supposed to, you know, you're supposed to just put them out, right? And so it's really, it's beautiful. I'm, I'm joking, but it really is. It's beautiful, right? The lights go, uh, you dim the lights and you've got these just, this just very quaint, very beautiful thing. But I don't think it's a mistake that we celebrate Christmas with lights. I don't think it's a mistake. We don't, it's not a mistake to celebrate Christmas with lights because Christmas is about the light of the world breaking into our darkness. 
And you think about how dark the world is without Jesus. Every single place and every single heart that, that, that Jesus does not reign in, darkness reigns in its place. The world is a very dark place apart from God. We talked about this last week when we were talking about missions. Everywhere the gospel isn't, it's dark, it's barren, it's ravaged, it's destroyed. And it has all kinds of oppression and all kinds of darkness and all kinds of sins against each other and all kinds of uh, power struggles and, and all kinds of just utter devastation of humanity. It's dark. Nations are dark places when God does not rule there, when Jesus is not acknowledged there, when his rule isn't acknowledged there. And we have darkness and we have fear and we have agendas and we have slander. And the people that get paid with our money to lead our nation are more consumed with themselves and their agendas and their sides than they are with the people they've been entrusted to lead and take care of. Because it's dark everywhere Jesus doesn't reign. It's dark everywhere Jesus doesn't reign, but it doesn't stop at nations and it doesn't stop at cultures. It's also right here. Wherever Jesus does not reign, it's darkness. It's the darkness of sin. It's the darkness of shattered relationships. It's the darkness of our pride. It's the darkness of us wanting our way all the time, right away. It's the darkness of just self-promotion and vain glory and, and pride and everything we can think of. It's the, it's the, it's the darkness of lust. It's the darkness of what, whatever it is that captures us and consumes us because we're about us. And darkness always leaves despair in its path. Darkness is always crushingly disappointing. Darkness is always breaking of us and others. And so if it's not our sin, it's the sin of others against us. The world is a dark place everywhere where Jesus does not reign. And Christmas is about light piercing darkness. Christmas is about light piercing our personal darkness. Christmas is about light piercing our personal darkness in a way that sends us out into a world of darkness to spread light. And it's about an army of people who have been entrusted with light, who have met the God who is light, and who are now bearers of light into the world, who are the light of the world, so that the world may look and see the good deeds of them and glorify their Father in heaven. And that's what we're looking at in this passage. Look, there will be no gloom... For who who was in anguish, for in the former times he brought into, excuse me, contempt the land of Zebulon and the land of Naphtali. So there were no gloom for those who are in darkness. We're transitioning now. So gloom has been well described in 7 and 8. We did get introduced to Messiah there, though. You may remember, uh, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. That is God with us. So piercing into that darkness of 7 and 8 is Emmanuel's prophecy. It is that God will come, but it's also war, it's fear, it's, it's, it's if you were to imagine like I am this weak little powerless thing in a culture who is running away from God as fast as it can run away from God in a world that is at war. And you can think how bent over you would be if you were in that situation. And maybe you're a little bit bent over by the situation that we're in now. Whether it be nationally, whether it be internationally, maybe you're scared to death that some bomb's going to drop out of the sky with nuclear stuff attached to it. Maybe you're living in that fear. Maybe you're scared to death that the nation is going to be torn into absolute tatters by all the turmoil that's going on. Maybe you're scared to death that your family is going to fall apart. And you're bent over by the weight of this world. But there will be no gloom for who is in anguish. In the former times... 
In the former times, there was contempt. In the former time, there was shame, would be the word I would use for that. In the former time, there was shame, and it, it's in the land of Zebulon and the land of Naphtali, and y'all probably aren't real familiar with your, your uh, Near East geography. So what is that talking about? The land of Naphtali and the land of Zebulon were the, kind of the northern, northeastern tip of the land of Israel. Most susceptible to invasion. If an army's coming, they're coming through you first. So the most susceptible to that, but not just the most susceptible militarily, they're also the most susceptible culturally and spiritually. And so there's this interchange of Gentiles flowing in and coming out and they're spreading their culture and they're spreading their godlessness and they're spreading their idolatry and they come in and they mix. And it's actually called Galilee of the Gentiles. They had so mixed into that area that they had actually kind of migrated from a Jewish background and a religious God-fearing background into the mixed cultures, spiritual cultures that are around them. And so they are spiritually now bankrupt. They are militarily bankrupt. In fact, parts of them are already been conquered by this growing empire of Syria. And so you have shame. You have shame because you have spiritually run from God. You have shame because you're this little defenseless place. You have shame because you've been conquered by your enemies. You are in contempt. But you won't always be. In the former times, that was true, but guess what? A latter time is coming. Another time is coming. The time is coming where you'll be glorious. The time is coming where you'll be honored. The time is coming where this little nothing piece of dirt in this nothing place on the earth will be the central hub of Messiah's ministry, and your shame will be turned to honor. And instead of this looking down on them because you're a bunch of like spiritual misfits who have run away from God, you will then be honored instead because God visited you and started His ministry ministry in you and focused his ministry on you and you'll be honored for that in Galilee of the nations and that is the same that is true of us in our sin we've run from God in our sin we are culturally devastated in ourselves and living in a cultural that's run from God and is devastated shame on us that's the former times But in the latter times, whatever those happen to be, probably Messiah, because that's what we're talking about. That's what this text is talking about. But when Messiah comes, that shame is replaced with honor in its place. And that running from God, that that lostness from God is then replaced with redemption from God. You were in gloom. You were in contempt. But the day is coming. Look for it. Wait for it. Rejoice in it. The latter time where he'll make it glorious. And it's described as light. You are in the midst of darkness, spiritual darkness, cultural darkness, political darkness. And in the midst of that darkness, that is exactly where light will shine. Y'all are right out there? That's where light's coming. Look at it. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. And those that have dwelt in the deepest of darkness, on them light has shone. If you go to Matthew chapter 4, you find this exact passage. And so Jesus left his area... Jesus of Nazareth up there in these regions we're talking about. But he actually moved from Nazareth, this Galilee area, into the land of Zebulon and Naphtali for the express purpose that it says that this word might be fulfilled. That those who walked in darkness, on them this light has shone. And that's what Messiah is coming. As he walks into darkness, your darkness, culture's darkness, a world's darkness, and shines light. What he does is he walks into your shame... And a culture's shame. And a nation's shame. And he removes it. And he places the honor of his redemption in its 
place. That's what Messiah does. That's what Jesus being born and celebrated during this time. That's what it does. And so it calls to the faithful, whatever their darkness is, it calls to the faithful. And it says hope. Because Messiah's coming brings light, hope. What's your darkness? It's not going to be unique. Satan wants you to think it's unique. Nobody gets it. Nobody's been there before. You're alone. Nobody will understand. If you ever have to talk to anybody about that, they will reject you and run from you as fast as they can. Be alone. What's your darkness? It's not unique. Your specifics will be because they're yours. But the darkness theme of your life won't be. What's yours? Christmas is about light piercing that. And the hope of a light that will one day perfectly restore that. That's what it's about. Second step. Messiah's coming will break oppression and result in peace and joy. Messiah's coming will break oppression and result in peace and joy. So oppression... That is the strong ruling over the weak, the the strong manipulating and using and treading on and controlling the weak, using them for their own purposes. That's just part of the human condition. Ever since the fall, oppression has been the norm of humanity. Everybody wants power. They want power in themselves. They want power in their homes. They want power in their neighborhood HOAs. Have you ever been part of like a homeowners association? Yep. Like, give a, give a person like a little bit of authority about can your grass be, you know, properly edged, and boy, you think they're the king of the world all of a sudden. Like, people, all we need you to do is like, you know, just keep the neighborhood running. Right? We don't need you to, and they're out there measuring the grass, and like that, you know, that's like, that went to, that, that grass is too tall, you gotta get there. I'm sorry, I gotta notice this summer. Par- <laughs> Oppression is part of the human condition. I was actually reading a story this week about a, a stepdad who um, would kind of, would, he maimed his stepdaughter and then bathed her in peroxide. Oppression is part of the human condition. And it's horrible. Parents to children, domestic situations where there's abuse and problems, it's everywhere. Oppression is part of our economic systems at times and it's part of our political systems where they want to use us and control us and manipulate us and propaganda us and agenda us so that we hate each other and we turn away from each other and we're separate from each other so that they can keep their power and they can keep their money. And that's what they do because that's the human condition. If we let them, that is. That's what they do. And it's so pervasive and it's so systemic. If you have, fortunately and unfortunately, um, Made friends with, with a guy that runs some camps and ministries towards foster kids. And if you just sit and listen, oppression is so heartbreakingly present in our world. It's so desperately broken in our world. And it's so systemic and it's so structural that all you can do is weep with those who weep. Like, there's no fixing it. You look out at human trafficking. There's no fixing it. 20 million people on the earth in bondage today. There's no fixing it. What do you do? Except for weep at how broken it is. And remember that it won't always be this way. Remember that one day the tears will be wiped from every single human eye. We can remember that. It's coming. 
And so Christmas is a message about joy coming into oppression. It's about life coming to the places where death reigns. It's about oppression being broken off. But you know what? The greatest oppression in the world is not the abuse parents have of their kids. And it's not the abuse of dictators ruling over their people. The greatest oppression in all the world is the oppression that lives right here inside of every human heart. It is the oppression of being lost and separated from God. It is the oppression of what Romans 6 calls being slaves to sin. And so don't present your members as instruments of evil, of unrighteousness, but to God as instruments of righteousness. We are slaves to sin. And Jesus came first into the world, and this is the first time, to break that first oppression. To set you free from what really enslaves you and what will eternally enslave you and take away all hope for all eternity. That's his first breaking of oppression. But when Jesus breaks our individual, our in-here oppression... He sends us out into the world to spread light and to take shackles off the world's oppression and to plant the kingdom everywhere we go that takes shackles off of people and sets people free because Jesus is somebody who takes shackles off and proclaims liberty to the captives and proclaims the gospel to the poor. He sends his people out then as those who have had that first oppression crushed in them to take oppression off of the people that they have any influence or any care over or to weep with those where there is no fixing on this side of heaven, but there will be a fix one day when he breaks into this world and he makes everything right again. But we're to be people who spread liberty, an army of bondage-breaking people. Because we have a Savior who is a bondage-breaking Savior. And so get this right. Don't ever miss that the gospel rescues people. People rescue cultures. The gospel breaks the bonds off of people People break the bonds off the culture around them. And if we ever get that out of order and we go try to fix the world without fixing the human heart through the redemption of Jesus Christ alone, we are always going to leave it more broken than we did than we found it. The only hope is that individuals are set free and then go into the world to proclaim freedom and go into the world to spread tangibly what that freedom is like. That's the only hope. So look at this. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as the joy at the harvest, and they divide the spoil. We've got to go through this quickly, but I want you to see like, the, the result of light coming, the result of what we would call Messiah breaking into the world is joy spreading contagiously all over the nation. And it's not Baptist kind of joy. Are you all right? Yay! Woo-hoo. I mean, it's like... It's like a little bit of Pentecostal with good theology, shouting kind of joy. All right? Are y'all with me? Like, it's that kind of joy. Look at it in here. He gives you two examples. It's like they rejoice at the harvest. And so they would actually have festivals built around the harvest coming. And the whole town would celebrate or the nation would gather and celebrate. And so it's like this agricultural town, the harvest and all the fields around it's been brought in. And we've got a bumper crop. And so we're going to throw this huge community party. We are going to shut down the town and we are going to feast. And we're going to celebrate. That's the kind of joy that comes when this light, which is the Messiah, comes You've increased his joy. But also it's the kind of joy at the harvest. It's also the kind of joy when you send an army out. And they go and they go into battle with their enemies. And they come victorious over their enemies. And they take the spoil, the rightful spoils of the enemy. And they come back home victorious. And the whole town gathers around and throws this massive parade and this massive feast. And they celebrate again. That's the kind of joy we're talking about when Messiah comes. And then he's going to give you three answers for why. 
Why is there this much joy? Why is the town breaking out in celebration? Why are they shouting with excitement and celebration? Verse 4, 4. Verse 5, 4. Verse 6, 4. Those are reasonings for why it's happening. And so the first two are parallel. The last one is what it's all pointing to. Look at this. 4, the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder and the rod of his oppressor has been broken at the day of Midian, as at the day of Midian. And so all those are words for oppression. The yoke is what they would put on animals to do hard labor and sometimes people to do hard labor, forced labor. Or it would be a metaphor of like high overburdened taxation or dominating dictatorial leadership over people that crushes and and, and steps over them. That's that's the condition of people oppression. And the rod, the, 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 the disciplining, breaking rod of an oppressor that's cracked over those who don't keep up, don't live up to the standards and demands. It's about crushing the people under them. And these are images of that. But look what happens. You have broken it. You have broken the oppression that lies over mankind at the day of Midian. And you're like, I don't know what the day of Midian is. You you remember a guy named Gideon? You know, this mighty man of valor that's hiding in a a pit, like doing his work so nobody sees him. Like that guy? Yeah, well, he gets this, this big army against a much, much bigger army. And God's like, no, that's too much. I don't get glory when when you've got kind of an equal army that could win by tactics. And so he calls it down to Gideon and his 300 men going against this massive army. And he sends them to flight and they slaughter him. And the people just run out of the towns chasing him all over the place, killing him and taking the spoil. That's the way God is going to break the oppression that lies over the top of people. He is going to snap it, not with some great human ingenuity tactic or force, but with the sovereign work that shows his glory off when he does it. He is an oppression-breaking And then there's going to be such an end to war that instead of needing military boots and military equipment and military gear, like we're not even going to need that anymore. So you know what it would be good for? Let's just use it for kindling for fire. Like there's going to be that little need for the instruments of war anymore. In fact, in chapter 2, we ran into this and it says that they're not going to practice war anymore and they're going to beat their swords into plowshares. Like there's going to be so little need, no need whatsoever for war instruments anymore. Just do your farming with it. That's what's coming. And so oppression is going to be taken off of people. And that's a reason for joy. Is that a reason for joy for you? Maybe it's happened and your first oppression has been broken off because you met Jesus. Do you remember that? Do you remember life without Jesus anymore? Has it been too long that you don't remember sin? And you don't remember its weight? And you don't remember its frustration? You don't remember like... The powerlessness of it. You don't remember the emptiness of it. You don't remember the devastation of life apart from Jesus. Let God remind you by the Holy Spirit what it was like. Because until that first oppression is breaking off, until you remember and experience that first oppression being removed, you'll never be someone that wants to go and see other people's oppression removed and broken. But when you remember that weight... When you remember it sitting on top of you, carrying it day after day, and you remember its shame heaped on top of you. When you remember that, passages like this cause joy and not the Baptist kind. Like the really exciting, shouting, 
feast-throwing, festival-having kind of joy because we remember we were chained and now we're free. We remember we were captives and now we're at liberty. We remember that. Okay, all right. Just, just. What can we do? The reason for joy is oppression will be broken for them one day. And they can look forward with hope that it's not always going to be this way. They can remember and they can look forward to a day where war will not be the norm anymore. And the fear of being conquered by vicious, savage nations will not be the norm anymore. And that's us. The last step we're going to take today. Messiah's coming will initiate an unending kingdom of peace and justice. Messiah's coming will initiate an unending kingdom of peace and justice. Paul Tripp talks about in his book that we're kingdom people. And we live in one of two kingdoms. Like the first kingdom that God established was this universal kingdom where he is the good ruler over a good and flourishing humanity. And that's what it's meant to be like. Like the world is meant to be about him under his rule, carrying out his rule all over the earth, putting an image and representation of him in every corner of the earth and subduing it. But that isn't the kingdom we like so much. We have shrunk the universal rule of God down to the little kingdom of me. And I like to live for me. And I like to live for what I want. And I like it my way. And I like when I'm respected. And I like when I'm honored. And I like when I'm promoted. And I like when my ideas are the best ideas. And I like it my way. And I like it when other people serve that and recognize that. It's just not the right way to live. Because you know what the result of it is? It's the anger you're living with. It's the bitterness you're living with. It's the disappointment you're living with. It's the shattered hopes and dreams you're living with. Because like, you're living for this little bitty kingdom and you weren't designed to live for that. You were designed to live in this big, glorious, eternal, universal rule of God. And you were designed to be part of representing that in the world. Then be part of enjoying that forever and forever and ever. And that's what we see in this passage The last reason for joy, the ultimate reason for joy, the way oppression will break. You know how oppression is going to break? God's going to give us a son. Do you know how shame will be removed? God's going to give us a royal son. Do you know how gloom will turn to to joy? God's going to give us his son. Do you know how wars will finally cease one day? God is going to send his son. And that is how he's going to do it. For unto us a child is born and unto us a son is given. And this just isn't some ordinary son of two people that fell in love and had a baby. This is God's sovereign gifted son into the world. He's going to give it to us. And the government will be upon his shoulders. He will carry the government of all governments, the rule of all rule. He will take it up, place it on his shoulders and own it and faithfully carry it out. And the government will be upon his shoulders. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counsel. Wonderful means extraordinary or miraculous. Counselor means plans or wisdom. He will be the one who comes and he will have these extraordinary plans. These miraculous strategies. These miraculous, extraordinary plans that he will work out in the world. It kind of sounds like this. God is going to become flesh and dwell among his rebellious people that hate him. He is going to be despised and rejected his entire life, hated, mocked. Then he is going to climb up on a cross. You say put there. No, I say climbed up because he has total, absolute, sovereign ability to stop it at any point he wants. Climbs up or lets himself be put on a cross. He is going to die for his enemies. 
He's going to raise again and send his spirit into the world to take enemies and adopt them as his children so that everybody who turns from their sin and puts their faith in him to be saved. Now, that's a pretty extraordinary plan. That's not the kind of plan that you thought up or that some tremendous author wove this amazing tale. Like That's not what you come up with. The hero isn't supposed to die. The hero's supposed to live and the hero's supposed to beat up the bad guys. The hero's supposed to lead this triumphant army and conquer everything and make it that way. But we're going to meet the extraordinary counselor. The one who has a miraculous plan. And that's who he is going to be. And he is going to confound the wisdom of the wise as he walks this earth. And he is going to be called the mighty God. He's going to, that's a pretty special name, by the way. You know, most humans don't get to take on the name like mighty God. Like I'm not, I wasn't thinking that when I was going through birth names for my kids. Like, you know what? Mighty God's on the list. Do you think we should do that? No. It's telling us, at the very least, this is a special birth announcement. But the most probable thing is this is the announcement of God becoming flesh. God's son. And so he's going to be God. He's going to be God, the mighty warrior. God. And then he's going to be the everlasting father. Now, this is not in relationship to the Trinity. There's a father, there's a son, there's a Holy Spirit, right? This is in relationship to time. He will be the father of all time. He will hold eternity in his hands and he will give eternal life to those that he is pleased to give it to. That's his name. He has the rights of eternity to place onto people. That's his name. He is the sovereign, almighty God. That's his name. The one whose extraordinary wisdom and extraordinary counsels will rescue people and set them free. That's who we're meeting. That's, that's the little baby that's like right in front of you here at Christmas. That's him. So I love that song they sung. Like he's laying in a manger holding the moon in place. Stars, stay right there. I'm going to be here as a, a baby. He upholds all things by the word of his power. In him, all things hold together. Like that didn't stop. He did not stop being God to become a baby. That's astounding, right? Because I'm looking at... <laughs> filter, filter, filter. Okay, stop. Prince of Peace. Like all our rulers are like, yes, I'm going to bring peace and prosperity. At least they claim that, right? This one's actually going to live up to the promise. He's not just saying that to get elected because there's no election. Right? He's not just saying that to take rule. He just has the rule already. He will be the one that brings peace. And so you think about the world as it was supposed to be. It was under the shalom of God. Man to God in perfect harmony. He would walk with them in the garden in the cool of the day. Like that would be really awesome. Without any temptation or any sin or any distraction whatsoever, God and man... And woman. It didn't stay that way. And then man and woman were perfectly aligned. And there was no fighting. And there was no toil. And there was no struggles. And there was no leaving the toilet seat up. Whatever toilets they used. That wasn't an issue then in the garden, right? And then man and creation was perfectly at peace. They didn't kill animals for food. And they didn't kill animals for clothing. There was life. And life reigned. And peace reigned. Until the fall. At the fall, we get the murder, or, sorry, we get the killing of animals to clothe mankind for the first time. Death enters into creation, just like God promised. In the very next chapter of the Bible, what happens? Cain kills his brother Abel. Murder is now part of the human experience. As soon as 
the peace of God is broken, wars break out, and they break out between Adam and Eve, and they want to fight for each other's position, and they break out brother to brother, and mankind to mankind, and they break out into the creation where death has to enter the creation, and creation also kind of fights back, and so if you're to go into the wild, it's not an easy place to survive without a lot of equipment and help to come with you. There's this brokenness in all these areas that were once at peace. The Prince of Peace is going to come. And he's going to restore everything back. Creation to people. Did you know the lion's going to lay down with the lamb one day? And that your little child can go over the top of a snake's den and just hang out because nothing is going to happen. Creation's peace will be restored with mankind. People will not learn war anymore. And there will be no more brokenness in relationships. That's gone. Because God has rescued humanity through the gift of his son, this baby this wonderful counsel of this baby that is being born. And then look at his government. The increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. There will be no challenge to his authority. There will be no army mounting an attack to see if they can take back a portion of his kingdom. There will be no end to his kingdom. There will be no end to his peace. And you've got to be a really powerful God to say, no, like it's not going to happen again. There'll be no more challenges to peace. There'll be no challenges to this rule again. And he will rule over the scope of everything. All the earth, all humanity, all people, all the universe, all the stars, all of creation. He's going to rule over that and there'll be no end to his rule over that. And peace will reign again. And then he's going to take up the throne of David and over his kingdom to uphold it and establish it. And so he is going to take back this rightful kingdom of David that God gave to him. 1 Chronicles 17 and some other places. And he makes this covenant. David, one day, one of your offspring is going to sit on your throne and he's going to rule forever and forever and forever. Guess what? You're just about to be introduced to him. He's going to be the one that takes up the throne of David, fulfills the promises of God to bless the nations again. And then... It's going to be a kingdom of justice and righteousness. Everything will be the way it's supposed to be in perfect righteousness, perfect purity. And it will be from this time forever and forever and forever. It will never end in time and it will never end in scope. Peace will reign again. Things the way they're supposed to be again. Righteousness again. And it will never end. It will never be challenged. And do you know how we know it's true? Because the very sovereign, omnipotent passion of God will laser focus on this mission to ensure that it is accomplished. I like the odds. Do you like the odds of that? All right. God says, you know what? With all my passion, I am going to throw myself into this child and this mission and this Messiah to make this kingdom come. I like the odds of God winning that one and fulfilling this purpose that he's promised. Because that's what he's going to do. So as we enter into this Christmas season, what do you need to be reminded about Jesus, the Messiah? Do you need to be reminded of this extraordinary, miraculous plan again that would rescue you? No, you. Like, look in the mirror, you. Are you amazed by that anymore? Why in the world would he do it for you? By the way, I've got my own mirror, and I've got to ask the same question. Why in the world would he do it for me? What do you need to remember about Jesus on the side? Do you need to remember that he is the sovereign God enthroned over the universe? Enthroned over your circumstances? Whatever it is you're facing.
Do you need to remember he is the Prince of Peace? That he has made peace between you and God and it is lasting. The God whose presence is the fullness of joy. What do you need to remember? Do you need to remember that he is a God who is working out peace from you into the world? And one day will make all the world at peace again. Do you need to just remember and hope? Like, it's going to happen. Do you need to face the circumstances that you have? Like, no, one day, one day the king of peace will establish a peace that never ends. Can you just remind yourself of that so you can hope and get up tomorrow morning and face it? What do you need to remember? Do you need to remember that he will be enthroned? Do you need to remember that the very sovereign passion of God is going to guarantee that all these promises work out? A couple of practical things. First, meditate on the meaning of Christmas. If your joy is sagging, if your stress level is rising, just sit down and remember, just go through passages like this and remind your soul, this is what it's about. This is what it's about. Yes, the world is infinitely, totally dark, but light has been born. And he's lit candles all over this earth for his glory. And he'll light more until the end of time. And every nation will gather around the throne one day. Gaze at Christ, not circumstances. We don't have this sanitized Messiah for a sanitized Bible world. We have a very real Messiah for a very real world. Gaze at him. Gaze at him with these names and these meanings. Gaze at him in this kingdom. Gaze at him at the joy that is attached to knowing him. Gaze at him. Instead of being consumed by the circumstances that you're so tempted to look at. And they may just be the kind of minorly stressful, aggravating circumstances. Or they may be the amped up, tragic, broken circumstances. And Jesus will be sufficient for any of them. Stare at him. Don't stare at your circumstances. And the last one, slow down. As we begin this season, it will either control you or you will prioritize it. You will either take the time to gaze at Jesus and meditate on its meaning, or I promise you it will capture you and it will just propel you through the next month and you'll wake up in January and you'll be tired. But you'll have survived. But you'll have missed this season of wonder of reminding your soul who Jesus is and what he's done. Don't miss it. Whatever you have to do to slow down, do it. Let's pray. Father, in Jesus' name we bow and we ask for the light that we know is there by faith to see it again. God, sometimes it just feels extinguished. Sometimes it feels like we have just worn out and we're done. Would you just by faith let us see this light again that Jesus has come, that he has broken into this world, that he has rescued us, that he has brought us from darkness into light, into marvelous light, to proclaim the excellencies of him. God, would you just remind our souls again what he's done and what he's accomplished? Would you remind us that we were enslaved, that we were in bondage, and that we are now free? Would you remind us, Father? Would you remind us that the Prince of Peace can reign over our lives and over our hearts in a world of war, in a world of, stri- a world of striving? Would you remind us, Father? Would you help us to not miss it, not miss this opportunity to remember? God, we pray for that. In Jesus' name, we pray for that. Amen.